Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're hearing from Jamie Keach. Aside from being a well-respected part of the mining community, he also has a creative side for producing engaging and thought-provoking content about the industry. Jamie's the co-founder of Capitalist Exploits and the host of the Resource Insider podcast, which I'll say is a must-listen. As a mining engineer, he was an early employee in a company called Anthem United, which went on to become Equinox Gold. He rode that rocket ship from a $20 million market cap to over a billion dollar valuation in three years. A key player in that deal was Ross Beattie, someone who Jamie got a front row seat to seeing how he approached and executed building that company. Without question, no MBA will ever provide that kind of experience. So I enjoyed hearing Jamie's observations about how Ross and others of that caliber moved with a sense of speed and scalability. Now a key part of Jamie's business is facilitating and participating in private placements. The mechanics of a private placement can be simple, but there's always the positive or negative impacts of how that deal is structured and what it's going to mean for the future. That's part of the conversation we get into. And of course, there's no perfect answers when financing, but when we talk capital structure, I'll quote Jamie and him saying that very, very rarely can a great project outcompete a lousy capital structure. We dive into some great topics about how to finance and build resource companies. Enjoy the show. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services. They've been in the Canadian capital markets for over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now enjoy the show. On the line, I have Jamie Keach, who's the founder of Resource Insider. Jamie, finally we connect. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. It's been many months in the making, so I'm excited to be here. It absolutely has, and I've, I've enjoyed following what you've been doing and getting to know you and seeing the developments you've had. But you know, as we speak right now, the gold is hitting a record high. The resource industry, specifically in and around gold and precious metals, seems to be on fire and, and getting a life of its own. And there's a lot of activity there. There's a lot of people looking to come to market, issuers looking to come to market to raise money and all of that. So I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, it's the best time to be in mining and particularly precious metals in a very long time. You know, as we're talking about this today, it's Tuesday and we have hit $1,800 gold for the first time in many, many years. So it's exciting and there's a lot going on and it's, you're, you're bringing this to your listeners at the right time, certainly. 
Yeah, great stuff, man. Well, what I'd like to do, let's let's kick off with an introduction about yourself because I know you, you've got an interesting path into the world of mining, mining exploration, geology, and, and now financing. If I hand it over to you, will you give us a background on, on who you are and then we can get deeper into Resource Insider and, and all that. But uh, yeah, let's start off with an intro. All right. So how far back should I go here? Oh, man, it's... Yeah, it's to up the to you. Of childhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's up to you. Let's hear the stories. Yeah, I mean, I mean, first and foremost, and you know, my career started, and sort of this is how I see myself. I'm an engineer. I'm a mining engineer by training. I went to university and I, I entered the work world from an engineering perspective, and I went into mining specifically because you know I liked science, but. I'd spent a lot of my youth and my teenage years and whatnot camping and hiking and canoeing and being outside and, and then later working, guiding trips. And, and I wanted a job that allowed me to sort of live a, an outdoor lifestyle, to travel around the world, to see interesting things. But, you know, I actually looked really seriously in high school about becoming like a canoe guide or a whitewater rafting guide professionally. And I was told that, don't worry, it's, it's quite easy to live off $20,000 a year. And I uh, quickly disagreed with that hypothesis <laughs> and decided perhaps I should find another alternative. And, and that's where I found mining. And it turned out to be a really good fit for me. I, you know, I started in first in university and then quite quickly in the industry when I was 17 years old and ended up getting to do a lot of cool stuff in a lot of cool places, even as a, as a student working in in northern Mexico and Sinaloa when I was, I think, 19 or 20, all over the world in Albania and Mongolia and throughout Latin America. So it really, it really scratched that, that itch for me. And you know, I started really in a purely technical role and doing everything from my early career of sort of exploration work, which is looking for new mining projects, and then later designing mines and helping to build them. And then I got to a point where you know, I was in my mid-20s and my sort of more entrepreneurial tendencies kicked in and I realized all the people that I thought were doing the really interesting things and making the most money and having the most fun were more on the company building side and they understood finance and capital markets and corporate development and all the things that were important to the space that I really didn't know anything about. So... After, you know, I want to say after much thought, but probably actually after quite a little, little, a little bit of thought, I ended up just leaving my job and moving from where I was at the time, Toronto to Vancouver, because I wanted to experience more of the entrepreneurial aspects of the mining business. And Vancouver is really the epicenter, I would say, of the world for that. If mining has anything that resembles Silicon Valley, it is Vancouver. And by that, I mean, it's an area where there are a lot of people interested in the space, really located, and a, a very entrepreneurial spirit where people are constantly starting new companies and throwing around new ideas and, and really trying to build businesses. And they're very venture-focused businesses, meaning they're raising money and they're trying, to, they're trying to attract investors and they're trying to explore new ideas. And I landed here and I didn't really know many people, but I through a bit of few good decisions and a bit of good luck, I ended up following in with a good group of people. Uh, we started with a really, I joined as the, I think the third or fourth employee of a really small company called Anthem United. And it was a $20 million market cap company. 
And then over the course of about three years, we built it into a billion dollar company through a series of mergers and acquisitions, through a lot of different financings, acquiring new assets, through building out our team. Today, that company is called Equinox Gold. I think they're trading around $3 billion today. It's led by a a gentleman named Ross Beattie, uh, who we brought in in my time there, who's now the chairman and one of the most successful mining entrepreneurs and, and investors and company runners of all time. It was really like a bit of a master's degree in finance, corporate development, mergers and acquisitions, specifically focused at the resource space. And you know, I, I, realized, I just want to oh, drive in on that, man. Sorry to yeah, cut yeah, you off. I mean, to me, no. that, that MBA that you took that in, in company building there from a $20 million or you know, $30 or $40 million market cap through to seeing that thing grow to over a billion, especially in your early stages there. What, what do you take away from that? I had some similar experiences there. I never saw, you know, the, a billion dollar growth, but definitely saw some, some growth in, in companies we were participating in and very influential in. But man, it laid the foundation for my career. What did you take away from seeing a, a mining company grow in that three-year period? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, to your point, it was very, very beneficial for me, but, you know, both in terms of an economic perspective, but even more so in an educational perspective. When you say, what do I take away from that? There are, there are lots of things, uh, you know, I took away from that and things that we could spend hours getting into, not least of most, and this is not the most interesting thing, but it's, it's the real, the the nitty gritty mechanics of how these things work, right? How do you raise money? All the things that takes to run and grow a company that no one ever teaches you. So mining is a very opaque industry and it's a small industry and there are not a lot of resources to just go and read about this stuff on the internet or a course to take. And the only real way to learn about it that I have found is to be taught by someone who knows how to do it. So do you know how to start a private company? Do you know how to take a company public? Do you know how to write a, a CA? Do you know how to write an NDA? Do you know how to negotiate an agreement for an acquisition? Do you know how to value that acquisition? Do you know how to actually complete the merger? Do you know how to liaise with investors and complete, fill out subscription agreements and file them with the lawyer and et cetera, et cetera, and deal with the exchange? And it's all these things that are really the technical aspects of creating, building, growing a company that are really hard to find unless you're fortunate enough to have uh, the right mentors to learn it from. And that's what this really was for me. So on a granular scale, that's really what I took away from it. Well, that's one of the things I took away from it, just the mechanics of how to build and operate companies. On a more general scale, it was, you know, working with a lot of these really, really great entrepreneurs, people like who my boss at the time, Greg Smith, who's still the president of Equinox, Later, Christian Milau, who's the CEO of Equinox, and then, of course, Ross Beattie. You get to see how these people approach the vision of building a billion and then later multi-billion dollar enterprise. It's something that very, very few people have been able to do in the mining space, though many of them certainly aspire to it. And just seeing the nuances of people that have, frankly, many of them done this before, how they approach problems. It was, you know, as I said before, it was a bit of a masterclass. You know, Can you, any you any really examples there? Like it, it is something I'm always curious about. Is there any examples of, of kind of that mindset or how they think and how they approach problems that you observed? 
Yeah. Well, I'll talk about Ross Beattie for a bit because he's the most well-known person of that group and rightfully so. He's the, the billionaire investor and company builder. So there are two things that really struck me about him. One, it's that he had a sense of speed and scale. So Ross, when we started the company, or I guess when he came on to the company, was very focused on acting quickly and acquiring big assets and growing the company to a size where it had a voice and a presence in the market. And there were many reasons for this, but one of the reasons for this is he recognized and saw very clearly that you know over the last 10 years in particular, the sources of capital and the, and the market had changed. And so much money in the mining industry was dependent on these big ETFs, for example, and sort of passive investors. And that you had to really quickly grow to a certain size to be able to be on their radar if you wanted to have a chance at succeeding. So Ross was very focused at getting new assets, getting big assets, doing it quickly, building to a scale for what he foresaw is a coming gold bull market. And, you know, what's happening today is, is really playing out that thesis. And, you know, the fact that Equinox has really just exploded even over the last couple of months is proving him very, very right. So that's one. The second thing about Ross and about a few other people that I've had the opportunity to meet that are highly, highly successful, almost to a, a man of them or a person of them, they are very high energy individuals that have a very broad purview. So what, what that I mean is they're often looking at many, many, many different things. They have their fingers in a hundred different pies and they've got a very broad scope of what's going on, where the opportunities are, and they're kind of feeling that out and they're, they're putting out a tremendous amount of energy into that. And, you know, there's lots of people in the world that do a lot of different things at once and they're very, you know, they, they spread themselves very thin. What I find differentiates these ultra successful people and what I noticed was that you know, they had this very broad purview and then, and they never really knew which one was going to hit. But once the opportunity in that portfolio really started to take off, they were able to recognize the potential in that. And then they really zoomed in with a laser focus and applied a tremendous amount of energy and time and effort and focus to that, to that specific thing. And that's what Ross has really done with Equinox. And if you hear him talk in any interview, and there are many out there, he will say again and again that Equinox is his focus. They are going to build a multi-billion dollar gold company, et cetera, et cetera. And that is something I've seen. And, you know, as you know, we have a podcast at Resource Insider. That is something to a T that every single highly, highly successful person is like, as far as I can tell. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And it's, I mean, I think you can see some entrepreneurs who outside of the resource space who just they spread themselves way too thin across way too many opportunities where I would imagine somebody like Ross Beatty, yes, they're, they're got their fingers in a lot of different things, but they're very, I would imagine mining focused so that those opportunities are percolating. And once one starts to really take, they're able to go all in and then also perhaps start to bolt on the other ones that complement the one that took off is, is that a fair assessment that when you look at some of these guys? I mean, I would say, you need to have both qualities and, and having, there are lots of very hyper-focused, uh, really, you know, detail-oriented driven people. 
there are lots of people who just spread themselves really thin and they do everything and they don't do everything particularly well. You have to have the ability to sort of know when to go broad and then know when to focus. And that combination is unusual. And I think the results of being able to do that speak for themselves. Hmm. Interesting, man. Really, we've got some questions to, to kind of guide our conversation, but the more we discuss, the more things I want to open up. But, you know, I think probably what would be good is, what do you say we talk a bit about Resource Insider and what you're doing there? Because I think that would lead us into a discussion of, of private placements and, and what companies need to know about doing those. So do you want to take us into Resource Insider and the, and the work you're doing there? Yeah. You know, well, I've been doing Resource Insider for two years now, and I have been trying to perfect my elevator pitch ever since, and I really feel like I still have never gotten it right because it's a little <laughs> it's a little bit complicated what we do because I think what we offer is a really unique service that, frankly, as far as I can tell, doesn't exist anywhere else in the mining industry, certainly, and maybe you know maybe in capital markets in general. And you know what we call Resource Insider is a deal flow service. Uh, a lot of people think of us as a newsletter, a mining newsletter, and those of you, your listeners out there that are familiar with the natural resource space or the investing space have probably seen many investment newsletters throughout their time. But what we do a little bit differently is we're not focused on providing general commentary on the market or, or just stock picks, for example. What we do is we provide our subscribers, we call them our members, access to opportunities that they wouldn't be able to find anywhere else in the mining and natural resource investment space. So what does that actually look like? It means I'm a mining engineer by training. As I mentioned, I, you know, I have some significant experience in finance and corporate development now over the last five years. What we do is I go out and I look for investment opportunities that I want to participate in. I look for deals that I want to do. And by a deal, I mean Typically, it takes the form of a private placement, a direct investment into a company. This can be a publicly traded company listed on an exchange, or it might be a private company that will be going public in the sort of near to medium term. And I go out and I meet that company. I often visit their projects or sites wherever they are in the world. I get to know the management team and I decide, look, this is the sort of thing that I think has a tremendous amount of potential that can make me two, three X, maybe a lot more times my money. And I want to invest into it. And I don't want to invest in an open market. I don't want to just be buying stuff. I want to do a private place, but I want to give my money directly to that company so they can use it as catalytic capital to go out and really get things done and to add value to their shareholders. So once we do that, once we find that, the members of our service, they get to come along and invest alongside me. So they get to leverage those hundreds of hours of research and meetings and site visits and et cetera, et cetera, that we put into the due diligence process of this. And they get to invest alongside me. We probably do one of these on average, probably seven or eight times a year is kind of the number we seem to be hitting. We're looking for really good deals to do. We're not looking to scatter our money around as a shotgun approach. And as a result, we've had really good returns over the last couple of years. And it's, it's a unique service. And it's not for everybody. You need to be an accredited investor to participate. But we've built a good group of investors that are happy to invest alongside us at the same terms and the results have spoken for themselves. And Corey, the kind of the way I really look at us is a bit of a, an outsourced venture capital firm. 
we're providing money to early stage companies that need the startup capital to get going and to create value. And instead of that money sitting in a fund somewhere, it's basically sitting in the bank accounts of hundreds of people that can then allocate it alongside me in a manner which they see fit. Mm. So how did I do? Did I explain that well? Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's something I took from that that I think is an important one. I'd like to drive in with you. And you said, you mentioned catalytic capital. In essence, the you're able to identify projects through the, the relationships and experience you have. And, and perhaps some of these deals come to you. So these mining issuers come to you and say, hey, here's what we want to do. You have the opportunity there along with the subscribers that you have to, to provide that, that capital, which could be the catalyst to help them get to a major milestone, the next level. I'd like to take a quick moment to say thanks again to Olympia Trust Company for supporting this podcast. They've been supporting both public and private companies in Western Canada for well over 20 years, and they take a lot of pride in the personalized service they deliver. I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. Now back to the show. If an issuer is to approach you, and I know we're we're switching gears here, but I want to get your perspective on as a public company approaching you or you identifying an opportunity, what's that process like and, and what advice would you have for the CEOs and management teams who are preparing to raise a private placement? Because it's not just like, hey, here's some money on your way. There's a lot of strings there. There's the terms. There's perhaps even discount to market. You know, all these things that have to be factored in. What are those discussions like? Where can you, where can you take us there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to talk generally because, it really, you know, of course it varies deal by deal and company by company. But so I, I think what you're asking is, what do I want to see when I find something or when someone approaches me? Is that right? And what, what are the things that I look for? Yeah, some of the things you look for and, you know, maybe we can go deeper after that. But yeah, let's start there. So, I mean, this will vary greatly whether or the, I guess the, the depth of the due diligence we have to do varies somewhat whether it's a public company or a private company. If it's a private company, you know, and I'm speaking specifically in the mining space here, you know, we need to sort of have far more legal legal and accounting due diligence than we would in a public company where they're obligated to report on these things already. But in a private company, you know, we need to see that they own the title of the project. We need to see the terms on, with which they own it. We need to see basically the structure of the company, who owns what stock, what price they got it at, how much money they have, how much money they've been spending. All these things that would typically be disclosed in a private company, we need to kind of delve into that in a private co. In a private co. So assuming that all checks out and it's in a manner with which we would, uh, we're happy with, we kind of go on to the next step. And that basically comes down to three things for us. So what I, what I look for and for what I want to see is one, that the company has a good asset. This will vary industry to industry. But in mining, it means it has a project, a mining project, that I think has the potential to achieve its goal. And its goal might be an exploration stage property where there's a high potential of a major discovery that will add value. It might be a development stage asset that is getting built and I think will get re-rated once it achieves production and they just need a bit of money to get them over the line. Or it might be a producing asset and it's, there are inefficiencies and they need more capital to iron them out or make upgrades or perhaps acquire a second project. So there has to be a strong asset in the company. The second thing that I really look for, and 
some of your listeners, uh, the people running companies out there will love this and some of them will hate this, but you know, we very specifically invest in very experienced teams. Our model is largely finding people that have done something successfully once and are trying to do that again. So if they're exploring, a good example is a group we invested in called Eclipse Gold. If they're exploring in Nevada to find a gold stage, to rather to find a gold project at the exploration stage and they've done it before and they've found something and they've sold it and now they're gone down the road and they're doing it again, that's the perfect scenario for us. And that's why we invested in Eclipse Gold because the CEO named Mike Allen had made a discovery in Nevada and now he'd found a new project where he thought he had a good chance of doing that again and we backed them on that. So we're looking for proven management teams on their second go. I suspect it's like this in most industries, but uh, certainly in mining, you know, 90% of the value is created by, I don't know, less than 10% of the people to be sure. Mm. And you're far more likely to succeed on someone up at bat for the second time after a win than an unproven entity. Not always, but certainly the odds are more in your favor. And then the third and final thing we really look for is how has that company been structured? How are we... So I guess when I say structured, I think who owns what stock? How much do they own? What price did they get it at? Is it in a way that me coming in as an investor, do I, am I aligned with them? Am I going to, if, are they going to be able to make money for themselves and big amounts of money without also delivering value to me? And if the answer is no, if you know, the CEO of the company or the board of directors stands to make millions of dollars while creating no real value for myself, and as particularly in the mining industry, this happens a lot, that is not something I'm interested in. I want to see our incentives are very, very much aligned. Can you drive in on that? Because I think that there's something there that so many people need to recognize, both in a private and a public company, that how important structure is and how it can just, perception comes from the cap table almost. I mean, you almost flip to page 14, 15, or 16 where they try to bury it in there in a, in a pitch deck and you quickly look at a cap structure and if it's not clearly explained and you start to see a bunch of cheap stock kind of things, that can, you know, it, it's, it can be a big no for, for professional investors. The other side is I think there's a lot of management teams out there who they don't, I, I say, perhaps I say this too much. They're playing checkers when they should be playing chess with their capital structures and they don't look ahead. So when you see cap structures, what are your concerns there and what advice do you have to help them protect something that is, can at times implode the company, even with a great asset? Yeah, well, first I'll talk about that from the investor's perspective for what we look for. So any of your listeners that are familiar with the junior mining space probably have heard and maybe have felt that it is, it's really rife with scams, people getting taken advantage of. And a lot of people know that, but they don't quite understand why or how. And a lot of investors don't think to look at the sort of the capitalization structure, as you mentioned before they invest. And, you know, frankly, you know, coming from a technical background, that, that was me when I started as well. You know, I was very focused on the project and the technical aspects of that and whether it could succeed. And the issue is, you know, very, very, very rarely can a great project sort of outcompete a shitty capital structure. And let me mm. explain why that is. So basically, we want to see what management and early shareholders got in at. So Often what you're seeing, or at least occasionally what you're seeing, 
is the early management comes in and they maybe they have the idea, maybe they've managed to stake a property somewhere, and they issue themselves stock at a very low price. And and what I mean by that is like sometimes a fraction of a penny. So I, there was a, an example I, I cited recently. I read in a in a report that one company issued themselves and the insiders 12 million shares for $9. So not $9 a share, $9 total. How long ago was this? This was like in the last four months. Are you and serious? That's I thought they right now. Yeah. I thought they kiboshed all of that. And I mean, you hear the stories of like some of the, no, no, no. you know, call this them the old boys. Jesus. Yeah. So 12 million shares for $9. Then they go out and then they line up their friends in the five cent round after they've gotten themselves at the point zero 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 one or whatever it is cent round. And then they go out and then they line up influencers in the space in the 10 cent round, which is people like me or you, people who have podcasts, people who write articles, people who are brokers, people who can help move the share price. And then they go and they do an IPO or they do, they take it to the general public and they do a whatever it might be, 15 or 20 or 25 cent round, whatever they can get away with. So by the time they go public at say 25 cents and they're getting in at a fraction of a penny, they're often up hundreds and hundreds of times. So that 12 million shares, it's not worth $9 anymore. It's worth, you know, five, 10, whatever million dollars. So even if the share price collapses from 25 cents to 10 cents and you've lost more than half of your money, these guys are still up dozens of times on their initial investment. So they, you know, they quite literally cannot lose in that share structure. They Mm. can't lose. And I really don't want to invest in someone who has set up their company in a way where they can't lose, but I can lose. And so that's something we avoid like the plague. So that's a great example of, of share structure. And it's just something that happens on a regular basis. I, I think, sorry, Jamie, I just want to step in on, there, there's a bit of a paradigm shift that I think can happen here for both public market execs and how they're structuring their companies and viewing access to public venture capital. And then also the investors who come in and participate in these deals. And if you were to compare Silicon Valley and, and, and private venture capital term sheets to the public venture capital funds that are available, if you were to look at the, the Silicon Valley term sheets, I mean, it's almost like taking money from a bank, even though they're buying equity in the company. And it comes down to they're the first ones getting paid when deals go through. Now, you can't exactly do that in the world of public venture capital and the kind of financings that happen for resource companies. But I think you're making a really good point there and that management teams and investors got to look at how are they putting us as close to the top as possible when that money comes in. And as an, as an example, that just came to me and it's an interesting one that I think needs to be held higher and higher regard by management teams. Well, yeah, exactly. Like when we come in, we're buying equity. We're not debt. We're not secured. We don't, you know, there's no, in no way is there a guarantee we get our money back. So that company has to succeed if we're going to make money. And there's far less protections in this than, than sort of the way you described it in Silicon Valley. And because of that, we need to be highly selective of the people that we invest in, highly selective of the projects we choose to back. And, you know, very cognizant of this, uh, of this share structure and being sure it's been designed in such a way that, you know, management teams are not going to be able to get rich without 
delivering a return for us. Mm. What else do you have from private placements? I mean, that's somewhat, it's, it's not the bread and butter of, of what you do with Resource Insider because you guys don't get paid from that. But it is the core focus and coming in early and, and providing that catalytic capital, which I'm going to coin for you because I think that's a great, great way of saying it. What other things in, in private placements should management teams be aware of, kind of the pitfalls of them? I mean, we could go into even ex- examples of warrants and attaching those and how that can be a detriment into the future. You know, any ideas there, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, listen, in general, private placements are not a complicated process. This is just raising money via selling equity. That's all it is. Private placement is a sort of a fancy term for that. So any company that wants to have an equity investment, that they have to do a private placement. What people are perhaps less familiar with is the idea of pipes, which is private placements into public equities and or private investments to public equities pipes. And that is when you do a private placement into a company that is already listed on a stock exchange. In our case, it's largely on the TSXV, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture, but uh, most exchanges that I'm familiar with, you can do some form of this or other. And in that case, again, it's a public company, but it is issuing new stock because it needs to raise money. And this is particularly common in venture stage companies like mining com- like mine- mineral exploration companies, like tech companies, like the marijuana companies, like the Bitcoin and blockchain companies, because they don't have access to debt. And they don't have access to debt because they don't have a cash flow and very few people want to lend money to someone who's making no money at all, be it a person or a company. So often issuing equity is the only option for these guys. And because these are high risk ventures, typically, you know, there are venture style companies. They're trying to achieve something new with no guarantee of success. They will try to incentivize investors to give them money. So if you have a publicly traded company and we'll say you're a mining company and you found a new asset you want to buy and you need $10 million to do it and you're trading at a dollar right now. You might go out to investors, and this could include brokers who bring their clients in. This could include funds and and private equity firms, or it could include people like me and retail investors. You might go out and say, look, we're trading at a dollar. We need to raise 10 million bucks. What we'll do is we'll incentivize you to do it this way, and we'll give you a discount. So we'll actually issue new shares to you at 80 cents. So you're getting them for 20% less than you could buying them on the market. And you know what? Maybe that is not enough. Maybe you need a further incentive, so we will attach a warrant to that. And what a warrant is, is essentially the same thing as an option. It is the right to buy a share at a later date at a fixed price. And typically, they'll expire after a set amount of time, be that one year, two years, five years. So if you are trading at a dollar and you issue $1.25 warrants, that means any share, any anytime your share price is over a dollar twenty-five, those warrants are in the money. So if your share price gets to a dollar fifty, each warrant is worth twenty-five cents. If it gets to two dollars, they're worth seventy-five cents, and so on. So by adding on this discount, by adding on warrants, they're making this into a far more appealing deal than you'd be able to find just buying the stock on the market. And that's why this is what we focus on pretty much exclusively at Resource Insider is finding great private placements that we can get great deals on. And basically, if we do our job right, outperform anything we'd be able to get on the market. You did mention that there can be complexities that can come in there. Where I'd like to go with that is like, are there 
but they're common mistakes you see public companies make when they're going out to to do a private placement. Well, yeah, okay, that's and that's for the management teams. Um, what, to your point, warrants are something that can be can be an issue, right? So warrants create an overhead on your stock, and they create a future dilution of your share price. So if you will go back to our previous example and say you're trading at a dollar, you know, you've issued new stock at 80 cents and it's included a dollar. Uh, we'll use a dollar 50 for round numbers, a dollar 50 warrant. Now say that all goes well and you raise your $10 million and you buy your project and you, things are moving smoothly forward and you see your share price ticking up as you would hope because you're doing great work. Well, that share price is going to have a harder time getting over a dollar 50 because investors know that you have maybe millions of dollar 50 warrants outstanding that people want to sell so there's going to be pressure on the stock pushing it down because as it gets over dollar 50 warrants get exercised more shares that are therefore issued it is dilutive to your company and so you have this overhang so unless something very good happens, unless, you know, whatever it might be, gold price goes up or you make a new discovery or you have some tremendous success, sometimes it's hard to push past that point and bring all the warrants in, get people to execute on them, have them become free trading shares and not a sort of overhang on your stock. And be able to absorb that into into the volume you exactly. trade to maintain your, yeah. You know, the exactly. conclusion I'm drawing from that. not familiar with that. They're not, or a lot of management teams don't, have an understanding of the impact that that can have on their future share price. That's where I want to go. Yeah. And I mean, I think that the conclusion I'm taking away from that and the, the main message is you've got a couple of levers you got to manage here when doing that, that financing of, do you take a greater discount with less of a warrant so that you don't have that overhang? Or do you go and offer a warrant that's perhaps What's the, what are the impacts there? And you might cr- cripple yourself and never be able to get beyond that price point because you didn't think ahead and you issued too many warrants with that financing versus perhaps taking more of a discount. You know, these are some of the aspects that I see and that's the conclusion I'm drawing from what you're saying there. Well, the reality is though, you might not have a choice, right? Okay, uh, often yeah. the terms are dictated to you by the market. Right now, and I'll speak again about the mining space, gold is on a tear gold companies are hot, you know, gold companies are raising money at terms that are quite advantageous to existing shareholders. Now, if we were to go back in time uh, a couple of years, when gold was very much depressed, there hadn't been a mining market in the better part of a decade, you know, investors could pretty much set the terms. And, you know, if a junior gold exploration company or any sort of junior exploration company at that point wanted to raise money, you can pretty much be damn sure that they were going to include warrants on that or else investors wouldn't be interested. So the goal of the management team is to get the money they need, the right amount of money they need at the best terms that they can get. And sometimes you've got the advantage in that and sometimes you don't. And uh, you know that probably brings me to another point that people need to, common mistakes or sometimes common mistakes, is that management teams take too much money at a dilutive price. And what that means is, you know, we've, we're, we've been dealing with this issue actually with a potential investment for us recently. It's that they want to take a lot of money early on at a very low price now because they are scared they won't be able to get that money in the future. 
But the case that we're making towards them is no, no, no. You want to really cap that now. You want to take, well, just for broad numbers, we'll say five cents. It's not what it actually is, but say it's five cents. You want to take as little money as you can at five cents, enough that you can spend it, create value, get your company re-rated, trading at a higher share price, and then go out and raise more money at, say, 10 cents which is going to be half as dilutive. You know, for each dollar you raise, you're going to be issuing half the number of shares. And often new management teams, you know, they get excited about, you know, someone wants to give them money and fair enough. It's, it's an exciting prospect that people are investing in your idea or your project. But often they will blow out the share structure early on. And then if it's not managed carefully, really cap the future value of that company. Hmm. It's an interesting one. I mean, it's, you know, I've seen and, and I've, you know, provided the advice before, like, take the money now, take that money, you know, you've got the money available to you, raise as much as you can, because you don't know what's coming. And it happened to be in an industry that is right now getting hit very hard. And it was the right decision to take as much money as they could on the valuation they're able to get. The mining industry now and the prospects going forward, especially with gold where it is today, you know, that's, that, that would be a different story. So I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Well, um, there's no right answer to these questions. Right? That's, Each management yeah. team has to do the calculus based on what's going on in the market and, you know, what they're capable of and how good their project is and what the demand for it will be in six months from now or a year from now. And, so, you know, it's, if there were easy decisions for this, we, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's, that's part of this. If, if, you know, this podcast and, and is in part to help others ask better questions and, and evaluate these things, considering the different perspectives of the guests like yourself. So yeah, it's appreciated. Um, you know, somewhere I want to go and I want to get your take on it is arguably it, some say that the brokerage industry and even investment banking is just broken. The whole model's broken. It's, it's not sustainable for where we need to be in the world of public venture capital and building early stage public companies. And you're seeing more and more capital firms stepping in. You're seeing people like yourself being able to get a group of subscribers who are able to look at deals and, and do private placements or, or participate in, in these offerings. And that's more and more relying on retail investors. What's your take on this? And where do you see we go or where do you see we're going with this? So my take, uh, and this is actually something I've had a lot of conversations about and thought a lot about is that it's, it's very complicated. The brokerage business changed in the last 20 years from being and really an access business to being a, a knowledge business, I suppose. In the early 2000s, anyone that wanted to invest in any company had a broker because you needed a broker to buy stock. And then, you know, the internet came along and you have these online trading accounts and it costs $7 a trade instead of $70 a trade. And it doesn't make sense for 99% of people to have a broker anymore. That being said, I still have brokers. I have two brokers, actually. And the reason I do that is because the stocks that I buy are often quite complex to manage. So they have warrants associated with them. If you're an American you'll need to get something called a legend removed when you buy Canadian stocks, which is a time-consuming process and challenging if you don't know what to do, whereas a good broker does this. So these, these brokers can service these niche markets now, but what I mean by the transition to a knowledge business is that 
the best brokers and the only brokers that I see still succeeding, particularly in the mining space, but I assume this is true for, for every sort of venture industry, is that it's the people that have good access to opportunities, but also can make selective decisions and can find good deals and can evaluate good deals are not just feeding their clients into whatever their client asks, but is our help directing them and choosing good opportunities and acting as a sober, well-informed opinion for them. So brokers that can't do that, I don't think are going to survive anymore. And I don't think they frankly should. I think just being able to transact a trade is, is not enough anymore. That's an interesting one on, I mean, obviously a good broker versus bad. And one who's got you know, sector sector expertise that you know they're not just trying to force you into a few speculative deals while also trying to feed you managed product as it seems more and more brokerage firms are moving towards and there's a consolidation and there's less independence and all of this kind of stuff that we're facing. But where I like what you're saying there and I think is really interesting is it was about access before, but now it's about information. And more and more, and I mean, now I'm talking about things that are, I'm passionate about, but I think it's the companies who it's, it's upon them to provide information to the retail market, which enables them to become, and I hate this term, but a thought leader. The ones who are coming out and saying, you know, here's the education about, about this prospect or this plot of land or anything in and around the sphere that's important to them. Providing that information almost puts them ahead of the broker and would even enable a broker to sell them should they invest in putting out their own information. That is not about promoting their company, but about educating the, the shareholders and, and their audience. So, so it's an interesting what, what you're saying there about still respecting good brokers and well, obviously, you know, make like it- I 100% agree with you. Like it's the onus is on the company to communicate their value effectively. And you just got to think about like the internet kind of ruined all this for, for the broker business, right? Because mm. think about it in like the 1990s, you want to buy, you want to get into some mining stocks, but what are you going to do? How do you even learn about these mining stocks? Like, are you going to call the company up? Are you going to get them to mail you their MDNA, their financial statements, maybe a corporate presentation? And then you're going to go through those presentations of maybe dozens of companies, hundreds of companies, and then you're going to call a broker and then you're going to say, buy me X number of stock in that, I would bet less than 1% of people would do something like that. Most people are going to find a broker that they trust that did all this shit anyways, and they're going to call him and they're going to say, hey, Bill, what good deals are on the go right now? What where should I be investing? And that's it, right? That was the whole investment process for 99% of people. And the brokers were really the gatekeepers of that process. Today, you just click on a company's website, right? on the internet. So all that information is highly readily available, but the onus is now on the company to make sure that it is there in a presentable, easily digestible form that engages potential investors. Mm. <laughs> it is like the internet ruined the brokerage industry, especially for these early stage companies. Now, That's Jamie, I someone like I come in, right? Like, frankly, what we get paid for is our opinions on things, our ability to identify quality and separate it from you know, poor quality. Yeah. And I, you know, that's, that's what we really do all day is why I look at hundreds of these companies and I say, in my opinion, these are the good ones, X, Y, Z, and this is why I'm going to invest in them. And, and you know, what's, what what's interesting for. too, is that that drives the clear divide between research in an investment bank or in a, in a banking institution and the brokerage in the banking 
sides of it, which, you know, always, you know, the Chinese wall and all that always like that just doesn't work. Whereas I mean, the independent research, the independent opinions, the, the, Hey, I've put a lot of work into this subscribe to my work and you're going to see what I'm after. Some, um, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Research is bullshit. It's complete bullshit. Like how can you possibly be convinced by a group that is basically working for the people that they are promoting and then the people actually writing those 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 documents those research documents those research reports have absolutely no skin in the game like how can you think that your incentives are in any way aligned with them and that you're going to get a good deal out of that it doesn't make any sense to me why anyone would trust any bank's sell side research you know, i think that statement might get you a bit of hate mail but that's all good man <laughs> all right, well listen like Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, good man. I, I stand, good man. Listen, there are good analysts out there. There are very good analysts out there. But they have a boss, and their boss makes money off that company that they're covering. So, you know, when push comes to shove, they're not going to be writing shit. They're not going to be downgrading the companies that are paying them day to day that they rely on for fees. They just can't do it. It's, it's counterproductive to their business model. Mm-hmm. And if we know anything, banks are there to make money for themselves, not for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jamie, I'm just looking at time, man. I know we've got to wrap up here. So I, I, can we jump into some final thoughts sure. for management teams, navigating these times and, and the work that they're doing in financing? Uh, and then in any of the, any final thoughts you'd have for retail investors who are out there? Well, okay, here's what I would say for management teams. I would say for those of you who are thinking of raising money for maybe the first time or you're considering going public, you haven't done that before, I would say be very, very, very cognizant that you will probably only have one shot at this. And if you get it wrong, you will fuck yourself to the point where you will (laughs) never recover from it. And we see, I see many very smart, very capable entrepreneurs, often the people from the technical background, the geologists or the engineers who, who really have never dabbled in capitalist markets before, but have gone out and acquired a great property and done phenomenal work. And then they fall in with the wrong people. And this thing gets managed in such a way that it not only sucks out all the value of the project for future shareholders, it really screws over the actual entrepreneurs that put this together, leaving them with a tiny, tiny portion of ownership, uh, even though they've done 90% of the work. So what you really need is a very good securities lawyer that you can trust and who will work with you and has done numerous IPOs or, or RTOs or listings of some sort and understands the mechanics of this and can advise you on how to structure deals so that, you know, it makes sense for yourself and for your shareholders. And you, you need to find good brokers and bankers that you can work with. There are some very good brokers out there that understand how to do this and bankers. However, there are many, many, many that will see you as a mark and suck every ounce of value out of your company so that they can sell it at the earliest possible convenience and leave you holding the bag with something that is now worth a fraction of what it could have been or probably should have been. So that's my advice. Mm. Get a good lawyer, get a good banker. Yeah. All right. Understand that this is like a highly, highly technical space that people spend their entire careers devoted to. And don't assume that you understand how it works if you haven't done it before. That's awesome, man. I appreciate that. And to follow your work. Where where can the listeners follow your work? Obviously, I'll put notes in there, the uh, links to the show notes. Tell us where we, we can get in touch with you. 
Yeah, uh, just go to resource-insider.com. You can enter your email address in there and you'll get regular updates from me uh, and my team about what we're looking at and why we're looking at it and really what's going on in the mining space. You know, we do podcasts on our YouTube channel, which is just Resource Insider. And you can follow me, just Jamie Keach at Twitter. Awesome, man. And yeah, definitely check out the podcast you do because you've done some great episodes there. And uh, I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this, man. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.